In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Research Institute has released its latest numbers on faith in America. They caused a big stir last year because one of the demographics that they noted was getting significantly larger, and this year's statistics bear it out. It actually has been a significant increase. Are those Americans who would claim to be unaffiliated with any religion, Christian denomination? Uh, Pew calls these the nuns. What are you? Nothing. And uh, this group has now grown to the size that it's actually larger than all the mainline Protestant denominations combined. And there are even more people who claim to be unaffiliated than Roman Catholics in the United States today. Now, there's always a story behind uh, the story. And yet, it's a significant thing, and it ought to cause the church to pause uh, as to why that demographic is growing. And do you know what area of the country that that demographic grew the most? The South. Now, what is it that would cause people to go from saying, uh, even a year ago, it's a 6.5% increase from last year, from claiming to be Methodist, Baptist, Episcopal, Roman Catholic, uh, to saying, within a year's time, nothing. Well, the Apostle John writes to us in his first epistle this morning, uh, and he is writing to us, not just the first or second century church, uh, but he talks to us this morning about truth and lies. And he talks to us about belief and unbelief. John begins by saying that we are more ready to believe the testimony of men than the testimony of God. We don't have a hard time believing uh, what others may say in Jesus' context, uh, in the church's context, uh, by Jewish custom and authority. Uh, In a court of law, you needed two to three male witnesses to substantiate any claim. And so based on those two to three, if they stood up and they said, well, I agree or I saw, they would say, well, then I guess it happened. And so there seems to be a real readiness, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day, to believe pretty much anything. I mean, look at the emails that get filled with your inbox about all the things that if you just do this, then Bill Gates will send your prayers to the moon and, uh, and will engrave your, your, your name in a crater. So there are a lot of things that we're willing to believe before we even believe the testimony of God. And yet if we're not believing the testimony of God, John says that that means that we're making God out to be a liar. It's a strong thing to say. Well, what is this testimony of God that John is talking about in the preceding verses in chapter 5 of 1 John? John writes, the testimony of God is the water, the blood, and the spirit. And what he means by those is that these are three objective events that show who God is and what God has done for you. The water represents Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. Uh, And of course, why would Jesus need to be baptized if John the Baptist's baptism was for the repentance of sins? Jesus was without sin and yet was baptized 
for us. When he steps down into the muddy waters of the Jordan, John, his cousin, looks at him and says, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. But Jesus says that in order that all righteousness should be fulfilled, it is right for us to do this. Jesus, in his baptism, identifies with the broken and sinful world. He shows visibly his stepping in to the problem of the human equation. And of course, his blood, which has been poured out for us on our behalf, on the cross, for our redemption, for our salvation, for our lives. Those two historical events are confirmed by the testimony of the Spirit. That is, that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, God's own Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells within you and testifies to the truth of those two events. But even so, we're more ready to believe lies than the truth. I don't know if uh, it's a generational thing. I, I don't think that each successive generation gets more and more sinful. Sin just has a way of manifesting itself differently with each generation. Uh, but uh, I know that there are times where I, I'd rather not have the truth. Lie to me. <laughs> Tell me I look good. Uh, this morning, uh, you know, the light in the pulpit was not working. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, I, work, I look better in dull lighting. And John draws this contrast out, right? There's, there's light and darkness, truth and untruth, belief and, and unbelief. Well, the thing about unbelief and the thing about lying, as Mark Twain said, uh, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. The thing about lying and how he says, he talks about unbelief in this passage, he talks about it in the present voice, which means he's saying unbelief is a willful process that every single day you have to get up and convince yourself subjectively of the untruth that you are believing in. But John is very strong in his language. He's basically saying, look, there are children of truth and there are children of lies. And when we hear his words this morning from John, 1 John 5, we're a little bit startled about it when he says there are some who have life and there are some who do not have life. Well, why is John so passionate and so clear in his language? Because he understands that lies create distortion, they create darkness, and lies hurt people. John's words are not simply a condemnation of those who would prefer a lie to the truth. They are rooted in a desperation that one might have life. He's drawing the connection back to John's gospel in chapter 10, where Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, that you might have life abundantly. In Jesus, life is exhausted of its potential. Now, this doesn't mean that exhausting life of its potential is lots of money, a private island, well-behaved children. But what it means, and again, drawing that contrast of light and darkness, is that when you walk in the truth, when you walk in the light of Jesus Christ, 
It means that you're able to see things as they are. The world looks at good things and calls them bad. It looks at bad things and calls them good. Truth and light let you see things as they really are. To be in the truth is to live and to be rooted in reality. One of the great uh, illustrations of this in the Bible is the life of Peter. And Peter demonstrates what most of us feel in our hearts from, some, from time to time, that we'd rather be in the dark. We'd rather not be seen as we are. In Luke chapter 5, there's a story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he's teaching and there's a great crowd. So he asks to get into Peter's boat and to set out a little bit to have a natural stage to those listening on. And after Jesus finishes teaching, he says, well, let's go out fishing. Well, there's Peter and his partners cleaning up the nets, trying to get everything together from a long night's work in which they had caught nothing. And Jesus says, let's go back out. And, G and Peter understandably says, you know, stick to preaching and we'll stick to fishing. But just to prove you wrong, we'll go. And of course they go out and they catch so many fish, uh, the nets are overflowing. And Peter's reaction to that is, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In light of who Jesus was to him, and in more so in light of his own sinfulness, it exposed Peter for who he was. And he wanted to be in the dark. He wanted to look good in a certain light. But when God's light shines on your life, there's no hiding anything. Everything is revealed, sometimes for all to see. And so Peter's response is, I want to get as far away from you as possible. I want to run to the dark. I want to crawl into bed and turn the lights out. Now fast forward to John 21. The resurrection has happened, but the disciples are terribly confused. They didn't know what to do, so they did the one thing they knew how to do. They went fishing. And there they are, fishing, and they've caught nothing. And then a voice from the seashore cries out, cast your nets on the other side. And they do. And the nets are overflowing with fish. G John cries out, it is the Lord. And Peter jumps into the water and tries to get to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. The same story, right? But two very different responses. Why? Because Peter only had half the truth. In Luke 5, he understood the truth about himself. He understood his smallness, his vulnerability before God. But by John 21, he understood who God was. He knew the truth about God and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his redemption was such sweet news to him that there was nothing that could keep him from getting to Jesus as fast as he possibly could. Rather than his sin being a hindrance, his sin actually pushes him toward Jesus to cling even to his feet there on the seashore. He understood the nature of the gospel that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved than we ever thought imaginable in Jesus Christ. 
And I think that if you were to ask a lot of those nuns uh, who God was, who they were, it's very interesting. People will come into my office and say, well, I can't believe in a God who, and they rattle off a list, and I say, well, I don't believe in that God either. But you see, half the truth is as bad as a lie. If all you feel is is your brokenness, but you're unaware of, of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you would flee from Him. Conversely, if you think that God is simply some grandfather and you think, well, I'm pretty great, God should love me, then you'll never know just how deep God's love is for you and what it cost Him to give you salvation. And so there's a lot of half-truth in the world. And the church has been responsible for that. Often we're good at talking about how sinful we are, but we forget the whole truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice that here in 1 John, who is John writing to? He's writing to us. He's writing to Christians who are struggling with belief, even belief in eternal life, even belief in security. Does God really love them as much as he says he does? The greatest distance in the universe is the 12 inches between our hearts and our minds. But what I want you to know this morning is that if you're one of those that is struggling up here and you say, you know, I conceptually can understand it, but how does it get into my heart? Know that your struggle is evidence that God is working in your life. And he's working not just in your mind, he's working in your heart as well, whether or not you feel it. That is why John says that there are these three witnesses, these testimonies that are outside of you. So when you begin to doubt, when you begin to struggle, remember the water, remember the blood, remember the spirit that dwells within you, who testifies to what Jesus has done for you. But if you're living a lie... Making God out to be a liar means that when you hit rock bottom and then the bottom falls out, you think that you're all you've got. That it's going to be up to you to bring you back to the surface, to get yourself back on track, to right yourself. But what John tells us this morning is that even those of us who struggle with belief... God is not a liar. You are not left to yourself. In fact, the Spirit of God Himself has been given to you, and He now dwells within you. So for those of you who are having a hard time making that journey from the mind to the heart, remember, remember what Jesus Christ has done for you and identifying with this sinful world and dying on your behalf for you on the cross and for His Spirit that dwells within you, that gives you the spirit of adoption so that you might look to God and call Him Abba, Father, who will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen.